Job chapter 1. Last week, as a, sort of an introduction to our study of Job, we surveyed the issue of wisdom and wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the three wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. I mentioned last week that with much of the Old Testament, one could even argue much of the New Testament, we, we are sort of given material, we are given information, and we are told to believe and to obey what we are told. But in the wisdom books, it's quite different. I mean, they call us to think hard about really hard issues. To be humble, but to think hard. To keep our eyes open. To use our conscience as well as common sense. And not to fall back or shrink away from the most disturbing questions of life. I think if the church is guilty of well, the church is certainly guilty of many sins in this generation. One is that it shrinks back from the hard questions and oftentimes gives very pat answers. Uh, just believe, just trust God. Uh, the writers of the wisdom books would say, no, no, you really have to struggle with these issues. Today we begin our study in the book of Job. And we just need to be clear about this, that a study of the book of Job should not be done in a cold and detached way. So we're studying this, this guy Job and, and the things he went, to, went through. Those who take their faith seriously do not have the luxury of doing so. We have to take this book seriously and to really be engaged with it. In our study, we who are committed to worship and to serve the same God that Job did, must face the harshest realities of human existence. We cannot pretend they do not exist. But we must be careful, and I mentioned this last week, oftentimes people see the book of Job and other wisdom books, particularly Proverbs, as presenting answers, ready-made answers. You have a question, you have a problem, a difficulty, an affliction, here is the answer. Again, I mentioned last week, I think that one of the functions of the book of Job is not to provide answers but questions that every generation, every family, every individual must deal with these harsh things and not simply uh, gloss over them. The structure of Job is, is worth mentioning. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, um, and you don't see it so much in the King James as you do in the newer translations. The first two chapters of Job are written as prose. And then the last ten verses of the book are written that way as well. But in between, what we have is poetry. That the dialogue between Joseph, uh, Jake, I'm sorry, Job and his comforters is done in the form of poetry and not prose. And it has been suggested that if you read the first two chapters of Job, the prose part, and then skip to the end where the prose part is, that you would have sort of uh, almost a complete picture. You have uh, Job as he was before, how he endured incredible afflictions. We will see this in the weeks to come. And then how at the end, God rewarded his faithful endurance and restored him uh, twice over to what he had before. And you would have the message that God may test us severely uh, with sufferings that we cannot comprehend but then ultimately he rewards patient and enduring uh, 
patient and trusting endurance with blessing beyond measure. But we don't go from chapter 2 to chapter 42. We have to deal with the chapters in between. And here we have the dialogues between Job and his comforters as they try to make sense of really an incomprehensible situation. And they disagree as to, as to why these things have happened to Job. Uh, today we begin with the first five verses of Job, which gives us background as to who Job is. And I think for us it is important that we have a clear picture as to who Job is and not water it down, but see him as Scripture presents him uh, to make the difficulties he goes through that much more incomprehensible. Follow along as I read the first five verses here in Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Who was Job? It's really quite amazing for all the information we're given. We're not given a lot of background about him. Uh, we're not told the time period in which he lived. Many have speculated, and I think I would go along with them, that he lived before the time of Moses, somewhere between Abraham and Moses, that period of time there. Because when we get to chapter 32, um, Elihu, uh, the fourth friend who has been silent up to this point, finally speaks out he's the youngest, and so he doesn't feel like he has a right to address these older men. And he finally has had it up to here, and he just sort of lets loose. But this man, Elihu, is called Elihu the Buzzite. And Buzz was the son of Abraham's brother. So Buzz was Abraham's nephew on the other side. So it's back during that time, uh, probably during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the time of the patriarchs. But unlike the patriarchs, we're not given anything of his genealogy, his ancestry, his tribe, his clan, his ethnicity. We are not told what country he belonged to. We are told that he was in the land of Uz, but we're not sure where this was. Uh, in verse number three, he is described as the greatest man of the people of the East. But the East entails a lot of territory. Uz is either south of Israel or north, and we're not quite sure which it is. In the book of Lamentations, uh, there is mention made of Edom, the country south of Israel, and Uz is mentioned in that context. I tend to think that it is not south of Israel, but actually northeast going toward modern-day Syria and Iraq. However, I don't think it's necessarily helpful for us to argue or to speculate about the specifics. I think what is incredibly important for us to re recognize is that Job was not a Jew. He was not a Hebrew. He was not an Israelite. He did not belong to the chosen people of God. And this is not only true of Job, but of his comforters as well. Uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, uh, Timon, 
uh, is one of the two major cities in Edom to the south of, south of Israel. Basra is the other. Uh, Bildad the Shuhite. Uh, we think that where he was from is as far away as uh, modern Iraq, the river Euphrates. Zophar the Amathite. Amma, as far as we can tell, is between Beirut and Damascus, so that's north of Israel. And then, as I mentioned, Elihu the Buzzite. Is it important that these men are not Jews, that they are not Hebrews, that they are not of the chosen people of God? I think it is important. I think it's far more important than we might think. First of all, I think it's important because it demonstrates what we see elsewhere in Scripture, but I think we just sort of go over it, that God had people outside the covenant line. That God made a covenant with Abraham, not simply so that Abraham and his descendants would have a wonderful life, but a covenant so that somewhere down the line, God would send the Messiah. The covenant was for the salvation of the world, that it would come through the Jews. But it is not to say that the Jews were the only people that God had. These people are God's people, but they are outside the covenant line. And these men have wisdom. These men struggle with the complexities of life. And they serve as an example for God's people. <clears throat> In fact, that some have speculated that one of the primary purposes of the book of Job was sort of a wake-up call to Israel to say, Hey, guys, there are other people out there who know God, who serve God far better than you ever dreamed of, and you need to wake up. And not simply say, well, we're the chosen people. We are the only people of God. No, you're not. God has other people. He has you as Israel to bring the Messiah. He doesn't have you, Israel, exclusively as uh, his only people on the planet. One writer has written about this. The book of Job comes to us from the margins of biblical faith, not from its center. No word appears here about the God who called Sarah and Abraham, who liberated Israel from slavery, who made covenant with them at Sinai through Moses, who proved faithful when they proved faithless. Now, this is, entire, this is an entirely different situation of people who are not of the covenant line, and yet they are struggling with the issues, and they serve God, and they fear God. As I was preparing... Uh, a couple of weeks ago as I was reading. I, I suppose I didn't realize this, but Job is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. He's not only mentioned here in the book of Job, uh, you know, we, that we sort of isolate him uh, from the rest of the Old Testament since he's not a Hebrew, since he's not a Jew, an Israelite. He's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, and I think in amazing ways. First of all, in the book of Ezekiel, in a passage in which God says judgment will come, uh, Ezekiel 14, let me read it to you. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply, and send famine upon it, and kill its men and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Remember the story of Lot, Abraham saying, if there, are ten, if there are 50 righteous people, 40 righteous people, God said, listen, if Noah was there, who saved the earth through the ark, if Daniel was there, if Job was there, the three of them would be saved, but no one else. 
if God were to bring judgment. That puts Job in fairly elite company. And then in, in the New Testament, in the book of James, we are called to persevere. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So Job is an important person in God's economy as he has scripture written. In him we find a man of integrity, a man who served God. But we shouldn't be surprised at pauses and mamas. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews spends an entire chapter on a man named Melchizedek, who appears only one time in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham goes out to rescue Lot, uh, and he defeats the five kings. And on his way back home, he is met by the king of Jerusalem, a man named Melchizedek, who is the priest of God Most High. Before Moses, before Sinai, before the Levites, here is a priest of God. And he doesn't belong to the covenant line. He's not related to Abraham. He's not a Hebrew. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. And it, it's not simply that God has other people. We are told that Jesus is a priest, not after the line of Levi, but after the line of Melchizedek. It is beyond our text today, but if you look at verse number 8, which we will, the next time I speak, look at. Uh, Job is referred to by God, as he is speaking to Satan, as my servant Job. We find this elsewhere in the Old Testament. Abraham is called the servant of God. Moses, Caleb, David, Isaiah, Eliakim, Nebuchadnezzar, and Zerubbabel. In each case, uh, the individual mentioned is singled out as someone commissioned by God to carry out his purposes in a variety of ways. And again, you may have noticed from the list, not all of them are Jews. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, but he is called the servant of God. Job is called the servant of God. I think the second reason why Job's ethnicity, the fact that he's not Jewish, is important because in that, he is able to represent all ethnicities, if you wish, all races. That if Job had been a Jew, then people might have said, well, that's probably a Jewish problem. If he had belonged maybe to the Edomites, well, you know, they descend from Esau, and Esau did bad things, so they're just getting what, what they're doing. We're not given enough information so that it is vague enough where what is said about Job, I think we feel relatively comfortable and applying in our own situations. What kind of a man was Job? We are told four things about his character uh, in the first few verses. There are two pairs, that he was blameless and upright, and that he feared God and shunned evil. The first pair shows that he's a man of pure motivation. Blameless doesn't mean he was sinless. I think the King James may have perfect, and that really disturbs people because no one is perfect. But it is speaking of someone who has personal integrity. He was blameless. And a blameless person is someone who walks in close fellowship with God and someone who delights in obeying his law. Upright speaks of someone who obeys God, who has faithful adherence to God's commands, as well as being honest and compassionate in dealing with other people. 
Then we're told that he feared God and he shunned evil. We talked about this last week. The key to wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Job is someone who feared God. He trusted God and he had devout love for God. But more than simply fearing God, he avoided, he shunned, he stayed away from that which was evil. Proverbs 16 tells us, Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. It was in part because he feared God that he avoided evil. I would argue that there's a fifth trait that is not mentioned here, but it is strongly implied, and it is that Job was a wise man. Someone who is blameless and upright, someone who fears God and shuns evil, such a person is wise. Uh, The wise people of the ancient world were sort of a separate class of people. And uh, the church, I think, really needs to look into this. There's there's an amazing passage in, I think, in 1 Chronicles 7, somewhere around there, where they're giving sort of a genealogy. They're just sort of listing there, you know, so many thousands in this tribe and so many thousands in this tribe. And after a while, you just sort of get bored and tired of it all. And then something slips in there. It talks about the men of Issachar who could read the signs of the times and know which direction Israel should take. Oh, okay. It's a class of people who would look at what was going on in the world and by their observation, by the workings of nature and human society, and would just see the harmony or the lack of harmony in the universe and would have the wisdom to know what decisions people should make. Some have argued that we would put priests over here who have the law of God and put the prophets over here who have the revelation of God. And in between, we have the wise men who just sort of observe life and and draw certain conclusions. Uh, I'm intrigued by that, but I think it's a little too black and white because Job is a wise man, but we see him as someone who sacrifices for his children, priests, And we see someone to whom God speaks, prophet. So we can't simply say Job was a wise man and didn't know anything about sacrificing or or worshiping God and didn't know anything about God speaking to him. Uh, Job was a wise man who sacrificed and to whom God spoke. What kind of a man was he? He was a wealthy man. We're given sort of a catalog list of his wealth. He had seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really mean a lot to me. I I assume a person who's got 3,000 camels is a wealthy person, but we just don't speak in in those terms. Now, if you told me somebody had 3,000 cars, then I could relate to that, but 3,000 camels, I'd And so we are told, in case we miss the point of the list, and by the way, the list is important because Job is going to lose all of these things. And that's why we're told this list, he's going to lose everything. The seven sons, the three daughters, everything. But we're told he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So in case we were wondering, boy, 7,000 sheep, 3,000, is that a lot? Yes, okay. He was a wealthy man. He was the greatest man of all the people of the East. 
But more than being a man of integrity and a man of great wealth, we have a practical working out of his integrity. And we are told about his custom with regard to his children. Because of his great wealth, his sons, one of the signs of wealth is they no longer live with him. They have their own houses, which is somewhat unusual in in the ancient world. Usually families sort of stay together. Each son is able to throw a feast in turn, the seven sons. And some have speculated, and I don't know how helpful it is, that each feast lasted seven days. Well, seven sons, seven days, that's 49. Okay. That's a lot. These people are pretty much uh, partying quite a bit. But the point is not to say that Job was wealthy. We're already told that is not to say that his sons liked to party, that they were party animals, that they were frivolous in spending their dad's money. Rather, it sets the stage for what is going to come. It tells us that Job shared his wealth with his children. It sets the stage for when they will die. They will actually die at one of these feasts, all of them in the same house. Why why were all ten children in the same house together? Well, they used to get together. And enjoy each other's company. But it also allows us to know about Job's custom for his children. As the head of his house, he saw himself as being responsible for his family. And so after each feast, after each round of feasting, he would do two things. First of all, uh, he would have them purified. He would make his children go through rituals of purification which, generally speaking, uh, meant physical purification, going through various rituals. And then secondly, he would, earn a, he would offer a burnt offering for them. Now, a burnt offering is different from other sacrifices. Other sacrifices, you kill the animal, you take certain parts, and you burn that on the altar, and then you and the, re- the rest of your family, you eat the sacrifice. A burnt sacrifice, you kill the animal, and you throw it on the altar, and you burn the whole thing. Nobody gets to eat any of it. And Humanly speaking, by the human economy, it's a total loss. Well, Job would do this after his children had been purified. And why would he do this? He said, perhaps, just in case, my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job had a pure heart and a dynamic faith in God. God had blessed him abundantly in terms of material things. But Job did not grow overconfident. He was so careful that he offered sacrifices for sins that might have been committed. Just might have been committed. I think it's important for us to understand one thing. This was his custom. This was his regular custom was not a one-time thing. It's how he lived his life. And as I was preparing for this, I was reminded of the phrase, as was his custom. Uh, I think Anne read it to us when we were going uh, in the early part of Luke. When Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth after his baptism, after the wilderness, we're told that he goes to the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus was a regular attender at synagogue. Job was a regular sacrificer for his children. 
It is interesting that Job is concerned that they might have cursed God in their hearts. Because this sin is central to this whole story. Uh, In the next section, Satan tells God, if you take away everything Job has, Job will curse you to your face. But Job loses his children. He loses everything. And he says, amazingly, the Lord has given, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan goes back to heaven, another meeting with God. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Job says, yeah, okay, if you take away somebody, something, they might survive. But if you touch them physically, if you take away their health, then Job will curse you to your face. So there's this, this idea of cursing God. And then if you know the rest of the story, Job is covered with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And at this point, his wife says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. This idea of cursing God is sort of central to what is going on here. I think, at least for my purposes in going through this, I find it interesting, particularly in the light of today's world, that neither righteousness nor riches tore Job's family apart. We certainly know of families who have a lot of money, whose then the families end up just breaking apart. Money doesn't solve everything. But when we think of righteous people, we think of righteous people as having good families. That is not always the case. But here we have someone who is both rich and righteous. And he still is very careful. He did not forget where what he had came from. He does not become arrogant. He is very careful. One writer puts it this way, that he had not contracted the dreaded disease of affluenza. Taking affluence and influenza and making it. Uh, Job is very careful. He is rich, but he is righteous. He loves his children. He wants to see them purified. And they allow him to do this. They allow their father. They're grown-ups. They have their own houses. They're throwing parties. And then their dad says, okay, guys, okay, the party's over, and I want you to go through these ritual ceremonies so that you would be purified from anything you might have done wrong. And they do it. One should have a sense at the end of this passage in verses 1 through 5 that we have read about an extraordinary human being. Not simply a good man. And perhaps not even a great man, but an extraordinary individual who lived a blameless life before God, who enjoyed great blessings, who had deep concern for a right relationship with God, and not simply himself and God, but for his family as well. He was an amazing, extraordinary man. And it is to this man that these horrendous things will happen. And to Job and to his friends and to us, it just doesn't make sense. And where Job's friends get in trouble is when they try to make sense of it. Ah, Job, we know why this happened to you. 
But I think for our purposes, it's really important to understand that this was not simply a good man, sort of a good guy, a good old boy. This was an extraordinary human being. And all of these things happen to him. And by God's grace, may we learn wisdom from what we study as we go through this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we worship you, but we confess that we don't always understand you as we prepare for our study in Job, we see just an amazing person whose wealth did not turn him away from you and even whose blameless life did not cause him to be filled with pride, who cared not only for himself but his family. And now as we continue, we will see that you allowed these disasters to come upon him. We ask, Father, that as we go through this book, we might learn and not necessarily answers, but questions as we go through our lives. May we, as we think within ourselves, as we deal with our families, with people we work with, Life is not as simple as oftentimes we pretend it is. Oftentimes we don't understand what is going on or what you are doing. But like Job, may we trust you. May we be people of integrity. May we fear you and shun that, avoid that which is evil. Father, I don't know when we will all be together again. So I ask that today as we leave this place, that your grace, your spirit would go with us. You would keep us safe as we are apart from one another. And may we be lights, may we be examples to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name.